Thank you for streaming the audio messages of the Fountain Church. Romans chapter 12, and uh, starting in verse 2, as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context. The Apostle Paul is really crying out, and he's saying, listen, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in light of everything that God has done for us, in light of the cross, in light of the resurrection, in light of everything that God has done, his grace, his goodness, his faithfulness. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your reasonable act of worship. But it's only reasonable in light of his mercy. But then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, So don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Remember, God just doesn't want to change us. He wants to transform us. The difference is, is change, you can always change back. But transformation, like a caterpillar to a butterfly, there is no turning back. There is no changing back. And so God just doesn't simply want to change us. He wants to transform us. And he says this, for this particular reason, that you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, perfect, and pleasing. Some of you here today need to realize and need to hear the statement very clear is that God is for you. That God's will for your life is good, it's perfect, and it's pleasing. It doesn't mean that it's always easy. It doesn't mean it's absent of struggle, but it's always the best route. And so today I want to speak to you from the subject of an uncommon peace. An uncommon peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. This morning, God, I know that you have a word for us. God, you don't simply just want to have us go through a religious routine, but God, we're able to encounter you because you are the living God and you are alive. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give all of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, God, that as we open up your word, you would open up your heart to us in such a way that we would never be the same. And God, we love you and we thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, does anybody ever, uh, anybody ever have one of those weeks where just some strange things happen? Anybody ever have a strange week? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I came home, and Jackie lovingly greeted me with some news. She said, babe, I, I think we have mice in our walls. So I thought, oh, not a big deal, right? We back, our house backs up to the Arroyo Trail in Livermore, so there's field mice all the time. Once in a while, one of those little critters will sneak into our house, and we'll have to capture him and, and, and release. I'm just kidding. I don't capture and release. Sorry, I use traps. <laughs> Get rid of them. Just saying. And, uh, and so I thought, not a big deal. Let, let me take a listen. And so she said she was putting Hannah down, and she could hear this scratching. And so, of course, I go to listen to the same noise, and whenever you want somebody to listen... It never works, right? So I stayed around a little bit longer, and then finally I heard it. I heard the little scratching and the movement inside of the walls. Now, the way that our walls are erected is uh, we have one wall vertically, and then it kind of plateaus, and then it continues on up into the attic. And so there's a little bit of space in between, like, our attic and our, our actual wall. And it sounded like they were coming from that location. So like any good husband, I wanted to listen a little bit closer. So I put my ear to the wall and I went into the bathroom. I was trying to hear what is going on. And as I was listening, I noticed that the scratching was a lot bigger sounding than a mouse. And I heard squeaks. So I did what any husband in his right mind would never do. I went back into the room. I said, hey, babe, I don't think we, we have mice I think they're rats. How many of you guys know the atmosphere of her heart completely changed at that moment? She went from, okay, like I can deal with this to, to freaking out. Rats. What do you mean rats? I said, well, babe, I'm hearing scratching. I don't think mice have claws like that. She's like, claws. And so she goes from zero to 100, freaking out. And, uh, and so, so she starts to, to tell me, babe, this is not good. I said, why? What, what's the big deal? It's in our wall. They can't get out. And we'll figure out a way to, you know, we'll YouTube it and figure it out. She's like, no, this is not good. Rats eat babies. I was like, girl, you've been spending way too much time on Facebook. 
baby. So she had this picture in her mind of these rats creeping out of our wall into the crib, tearing up my little baby girl. And I just thought, whoa, that's a little bit over the top. So the next day she goes to our, our landlords, which live right uh, in front of us. And she said, I think we have some rodents in our wall. So he comes over and he says, hey, Matt, I heard you got a rodent problem. It's like nothing I can't handle, all right? We got a little noise in, inside of the, the, the walls. And so he comes in and he listens and he hears and he listens. He's like Paul Bunyan. He's, hmm. <laughs> He's kind of got that deep voice. He said, oh, that's not a mouse or a rat. He said, that's a squirrel. I was like, a squirrel? He said, yeah, sometimes the squirrels, because the trees hang over our, our roof, They'll get off of the tree onto the roof and climb through some of the vents. They'll play around a little bit, look for some food. When they can't find it, what ends up happening? They find the hole back out, and they leave. And sure enough, a day later, no more scratching. I'm like, this guy's a genius. A squirrel. That describes the squeaking and the claws and all that good stuff. But what really amazed me about this moment is how quickly the atmosphere, our heart, the atmosphere of our heart can change with just a few thoughts. How we can go from peace to panic. How we can go from a posture of worship to worry. How we can go from a place of rest to restlessness. And I think what intrigues me the most is, I don't know if you're like me, but we tend to go to the worst possible outcome in those moments. Like rats tearing up kids. Stuff like that. <laughs> Just saying. We tend to go to those worst possible scenarios. It reminds me of Jesus' disciples. They were out on the Sea of Galilee. Now, these guys were fishermen, so they were well, really familiar with the sea. And a storm had arose that had them terrified. They were nervous. And any time a fisherman is nervous on the sea, you should be nervous. And so they were nervous. The waves were, were getting larger. The wind is howling. And Jesus makes his grand entrance walking on the waves, walking on Water. If you have been to church, you've heard that story. If you've never been to church, this is the moment where Jesus makes that famous entrance of walking on the water. And you would think that they would be excited. But in reality, they can't really make him out. It's dark. I'm sure there's a lot of mist and stuff flying around. And, and so what do they do? They jump to the worst case scenario and they shout out, it's the ghost. And Jesus stops for a moment. I don't think he stopped, but he's, he's proceeding towards him. He's like, oh, man. No, guys, it's me. It's me. And I thought, man, how true is that, that we are more prone to see the ghost in those moments than the Savior? But like, like we, we are so confident that that trouble is going to find us in the midst of our pain, just not the Savior. Like, like, we're so confident that trouble's going to come out walking to us, but we can't imagine the Savior actually coming to help us, especially in those moments where we're terrified, where we feel like we're out of control. Come on, you know those moments where you felt so insecure, you're not really what's sure to do next, where you can't see the possible outcome, and the outcomes that you have imagined don't look really good at all. Come on, when the relationship is, is so rocky, you feel like if you blink your eyes, it's going to break. Like, imagine it's, it's in those moments that whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years or two weeks, whether you're a man or a woman of faith, or maybe today you have no faith at all, it, it, it really doesn't matter because this one aspect kind of levels the playing field. It's something that we have all experienced at one point or another in our life. Some of us have experienced it at much greater levels than others. But if you're taking notes, you're going to want to jot this down. It's in these moments that we experience what we would call stress. Now, stress is not an uncommon avenue of our society today, especially of our culture here in the West. I am getting more phone calls of people that are wrestling and battling with stress and anxiety than you could imagine. And it's not from a particular age group. Matter of fact, it varies immensely across the board, but it's getting younger and younger and younger. Uh, it feels like by the month. 
But, but stress and anxiety, this is, this is not just something that kind of exists in our culture. In fact, if you're taking notes, jot this down. One out of every five Americans wrestle with stress or anxiety. One out of five. What's really incredible to me is that 45% of millennials have came forward saying, I struggle and I'm wrestling with stress and anxiety. Now, if you don't know what a millennial is, it's the generation that's from about 18. I like to stretch it all the way to me, 38. Um, so, but in this, in this millennial generation, imagine 45% are wrestling and struggling with stress or anxiety, in fact, the majority of the phone calls that I get are from millennials when it comes to stress and anxiety. You're going to be blown away by this one. 50% of all college students today have been to the doctors for treatment in regards to stress or anxiety. So, so it's, it's not getting better um, as the generations are rising up. Matter of fact, they're seeing an epidemic where it's getting a lot worse. Now, now, now here's the deal. Whether you've struggled with stress just a little bit or anxiety just a little bit or you've struggled a lot or you know somebody that maybe struggles every single day. Maybe some of you have a medical condition where the chemistry of your brain and the chemicals um, aren't aligned properly and they're imbalanced. And so you're trying to wrestle and figure that out. It doesn't really matter what level that you've experienced stress. I think that when we experience stress, some of these terrifying questions come across our mind. That, that, that can be really disturbing. Questions like this. What's wrong with me? Especially if you're a type A and you're used to being in control. You used to having all your T's crossed and your I's dotted. Matter of fact, they said that it's, it's a lot of the high achievers that experience some of the most stress and anxiety. And, and so you know that feeling where you're asking those questions. What's wrong with me? Like, Am I broken? Am I losing my mind? Like, what is happening? I had a high school student or a college student call me not too long ago, and out of nowhere, he is at the top of his class. The guy is brilliant. Straight A's, I mean, just runner-up, but he's having panic attacks like crazy. Just can't figure it out. I can figure out everything else. I just can't figure out what is going on on the inside of me. It, it, it stressed creates questions like, how do I keep up the facade? Because you know that only 10% of, of people actually deal and acknowledge they're wrestling with stress and anxiety. Only 10%. And so the rest of the 90 is, how do I keep up the facade? How do I keep going? We have people today that they're dealing with so much stress, but they don't even realize it because it's just normal. It's very common today. It raises questions like, can I continue? Can I continue in this relationship? Can I continue with the demands and the weight and the responsibility of this job or this position? Can I continue to function at a high level underneath all of this stress, underneath all of this pressure, underneath all of this anxiety? Can I function like this? And now ultimately, it leads to the question of where can I find peace? Where in the world can I find a, a sense of refuge, a sense of tranquility? And if you're a Christian, this is really frustrating because you know the right answer. But you find yourself in the midst of this tension. You find yourself in the midst of this frustration because you know the answer is found in Christ. But you still live in that framework and tension of worry. You still live with the pressures and the stresses and the anxiety. And so you know that God is the answer. But somehow there's a disconnect. And what you're actually experiencing. Are you guys tracking with that? Yeah. And so no matter what level you're experiencing stress on, no matter if, if you're dealing with it, maybe it's very little in your life. Praise God. That's huge. But can I tell you, there's probably about five people around you that aren't doing so good. And so if that's you, man, you need to learn and be equipped to serve and to help people in this area. Because it's huge. It's huge. Maybe for you, it's, it's persistent. <laughs> Maybe you wake up terrified. You wake up just struggling. Maybe you step into a social setting and you're just, oh, no. And everything just kind of goes through the roof. Maybe every time that you have to step or, 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 or step into something or make a tough decision, it just kind of grips you. 
Whatever place or whatever playing field you're on when it comes to stress or anxiety, all of us can identify that we have experienced it at some level, and it's a very real battle. It's a very real battle. And not only is it uh, simply a real battle outside of the church, it's also a real battle inside of the church. And so, so it kind of moves us to this question of how do we then move towards an uncommon peace in a world where stress is very common? Like how do we begin to move towards a place of peace and freedom when we're inundated and surrounded by a culture and environments and, and wrestling internally with things that just create a lot of pressure, create a lot of stress. How do we do this? Well, I, I want to point you to one of, one of my favorite books in the, in the New Testament. It's a very small book. And it's, it's inspired by God, handwritten down by the Apostle Paul. Now, let me just give you a little bit of the context and a little bit of the framework Paul is, is in prison. He's, he's chained at this moment. In fact, um, if anybody had the right to be stressed out, it was Paul. Uh, not only was Paul in prison and all of his dreams kind of crushed at the moment of going to Rome, he's also dealing with divisions that are happening in the church. Divisions are happening and, 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 and disputes, and there's really not a whole lot that he can do from his cell, but you could imagine the tension and knowing that relationships are right and there's issues happening in the church, not to mention the church of Philippi was experiencing great persecution for their faith. I mean, everything was on the line for them. Finances, relationship, their life. And so everything was on the line for this church. And so you could imagine if anybody had the potential or the reason to be stressed, it was this church and it was Paul. And Paul, in the midst of this, he, he pins down this letter to the, to the Philippian church and says, you know what, in the midst of all that's going on, let me show you guys how this works. Let me give you some stress hacks that are going to allow you to, to step into um, a place of peace that maybe you've never experienced before. Because I know it looks really bad for me, but I'm living in a completely different place. I know it's very common for people to be stressed in situations like like." like like I'm in, but I am living with an uncommon peace. And Paul writes some of the most frustrating words that I've ever read in the scriptures. And he writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Look what he says. He says, don't worry about anything. Great advice, Paul. Everybody, you can go home. Don't worry. Have a great day. See you later. <clears throat> right, even as I say that, we all, we all feel that tension. We all feel that frustration. Like, it's really easier said than done, Paul. It's easy for you to say, even though for Paul it really wasn't. And for their, his circumstance, it really wasn't easy to say. But we all feel that tension and that frustration. Let me give you a few things that I worried about as your pastor this week. Can I do that? I'm not going to give you the good stuff because I don't even know some of you. But I'm going to let you into a few. I'm going to let you into a few areas. Uh, this week, uh, definitely... Had some worry about my schedule. It was a heavy week this week. We had serve day. Obviously, I'm preaching on Sunday. I want to make sure that I have margin. There's a lot of other things happening uh, at the very same time throughout our week on multiple levels. Um, I want to make sure that I have margin and space for my family. I mean, just so many things that go into a heavy week. You start to worry about, am I going, am I going to be able to accomplish and function in the midst of, of some of those heavy weeks? Um, Next, my daughter. My daughter had to get some cavities or some fillings for her cavities. Now, my daughter's six years old. So it's a little bit freaky when you take them to the dentist and they have to give them laughing gas. And, like, afterwards, your daughter's looking at you like, <laughs> like, Oli. She's like. And, uh, and you guys are like, man, that's so nice that you're, you're worried about your, your daughter. Um, but I really wasn't worried so much there. I was worried about the bill. Because... Um, <laughs> Three cavities is no joke. I'm just kidding. I went into the dentist's office, and I went into the room, and I kept asking her, Oli, are you, are you okay? Give me a thumbs up. Because she's connected to the, 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 the gas, and she has this big old thing in her mouth. It's kind of scary to look at your kid like that. And, uh, and so I would just tell her, give me the thumbs up that you're okay. And she would give me the thumbs up, and the, the dentist finally said, it seems like dad is a little bit more worried than his daughter. I said, all right, man, I'll back off. 
But, but th- those are just some of the things that we wrestle with. I-, I, wanted, I worried a little bit about how mad Jackie was at me this week. Notice I didn't say if she was mad. I was wondering how mad was she at me this week. Now, if you guys don't know yet, if you guys have only, this is your, if this is your first time, we are not a perfect church. I am not a perfect pastor, so don't put me on a pedestal because I don't live there, okay? Um, but those are just some things that, that we worry about. And then we hear words like this, and it's frustrating because we feel the disconnect between our reality and what God is saying. We feel the disconnect because I am worrying about some things, but God, you tell me not to worry about anything, and we feel the weight of that impossibility. And that's exactly what it is. This is one of those passages of Scripture that God calls us to do something that's impossible apart from him. It's really a statement that says you're going to have to lean in a little bit closer. You're going to have to lean in because if you're going to try to find true and lasting peace, You're not going to be able to do that on your own. It's going to be an impossible feat. Now, you can find moments of happiness, but I'm talking about a peace that transcends circumstance. I'm talking about a peace that when the church is in disarray, your life, your relationships, your finances, everything is on the line. You're chained in a prison awaiting your potential death that there's still a peace that guards you in such a way that you're confident. I'm talking about that kind of peace. And if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down because what God is revealing to us here is that the path of peace is impossible apart from God. And we see this all throughout the narrative of Scripture. Anytime people decided to say, you know what, God, I'm going to do things my way, you never hear a story ending like that that ends like this. Oh, man, and there was so much peace. (sighs) Amazing grace. So much peace outside of God's will. You just never hear that. Like I've never had somebody come to me and say, man, Pastor Matt, I'm I'm so disappointed today. Spent time with God. It's the worst decision I've ever made in my life. (laughs) But I've had thousands, not not exaggerating, say, man, I wish I would have spent time with them before that marriage crashed. I wish I would have spent time with them before I bought that. I wish I would have spent time with them before I went in this direction or I made that decision. I wish I would have encountered him. And as a result of some of those decisions, my life is full of stress and anxiety. And now I'm trying to put all the pieces back together and I'm trying to figure this out. And I'm just really not sure what to do. And I'm just here to tell you that the path of peace is impossible apart from God. And this isn't because God is mad at you. This is because God wants you to lean in to this reality because it's only in this reality that you find true peace. And some of us, it's, it's not even just laid out for us clearly in the Bible that when people walked with God, there was a peace that guarded them. And when they didn't, there was a, a restlessness that controlled them, a stress that drove them, a pressure and a performance that, that they were enslaved to. But some of you don't even need the Bible to figure that out because you're living that life. You're running that race. Like you're doing it on your own right now and you feel the gravity of that. And so so what do we do in the midst of this tension? What do we do in the midst of this frustration where there's a disconnect between what God is saying and what we're experiencing? And I really believe Paul wants to speak to this as we continue in this verse. And if Paul were here today... And he were to give you a hack for uncommon peace. This is the hack that Paul would give you. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Paul would say that adoration is the solution for our frustration. You may be thinking, what? Break that down, Pastor. I'm going to do it right now. Look, look what Paul continues to say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. Now, all the Christians, I just lost you. Oh, here we go. Don't worry. Just pray about it. Just pray about it. Well, I tried that, Pastor Matt. It doesn't work very well. Most of the time when we hear this passage read, you know what we we think of? We think of offering up a few words to God. That's how we think of prayer in a lot of ways. Okay, I'm struggling. I'm stressed. God help me. Do something. I don't even know what to say. 
Thank you for this day. Right, that's kind of what we jump to when we think about prayer. But, but Paul is saying, whoa, 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 that is what Paul's saying, but that's not what Paul's saying. Because Paul uses three words to describe prayer. He uses prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Three aspects of prayer. Three kinds of prayer. And he starts off with this, this, this word pray. You need to pray. And it does have the notion that, yeah, you are to bring your request to God, but that's not where this, rude, this word is rooted in. It's, it's rooted in adoration. Come and adore him. Come and be devoted to him. Come and live your life with him. Come and worship him. That's the invitation that Paul is giving us. And so adoration, it, it, it means simply to love deeply or to have a deep respect for and so Paul is saying, hey, listen, before you just come and rush in and, and offer up your three words to God, that's great, and you should do that, but let me, let me encourage you to stop and do something right before that. I want you to spend some time adoring him. You see, Paul is inviting us to say, why, why continue to adore your impossibility? Rather, why don't you come and adore the one with whom all things are possible? That's what Paul is inviting us to. Why don't you stop for a moment and adore? So what in the world does that mean? I was driving a couple weeks ago. Everything happened a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and you know when you're driving at night and the moon is kind of out in front of you? And it's big and it's a full, full moon or at least a partial full moon and and I was driving this night, and I looked up, and it was just, whoa. Just one of those moments where it caught my attention. So many times we're just driving through life, and, and we see so many things, but we don't even see them. But it was one of those moments where I, 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 I caught it. And I looked up, and then I looked at the road, and then I looked up, and I looked at the road, and I was just captivated by this reality that here we are on a planet called Earth, that weighs septillions of tons, spins on a perfect axis, and nothing holds it up. That the moon is there because God said so. That we're just close enough to the sun so we don't freeze to death. We're just far enough away where we don't burn up. I mean, just the, the precision of the universe, it was just, just captivated me for a moment. you got to have these moments. And all of a sudden, something starts to stir on the inside of my heart. Man, God, you're so big. You're so majestic. You're so powerful. You're so perfect. And all of a sudden, I can sense my affections starting to grow. I, I, can, I can sense that as God is getting bigger, my circumstances are getting smaller. And I know that sounds really cliche, but that's what starts to happen when you adore the one who is sovereign over all things. And something starts to, to happen on the inside of you. Like, like, let me give you a picture of this. Let me show you a picture of our Milky Way. Now, in our Milky Way, astronomers believe that we have about anywhere from 1 billion to 4 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Now, you, we learned last week, Jeremiah said 2,600 years ago, that you can't count the stars. There's too many. So we know these guys aren't going to nail it. But let's say there's 4 billion stars in our galaxy. If you were to count those stars, one per second, right? Let's find them. One, two, three, four, five. Some of you type A's are like, get to the point. Get to the point. Stop counting. <laughs> right? If you were to do that, count every star for one second, it would take you 2,500 years just in our little itty-bitty galaxy. You see, sometimes we, we have to lift up our eyes in the midst of all of this craziness that surrounds us. Sometimes we, we, we got to stop and actually look at stuff. Like look at creation. I love what Isaiah says. Look what Isaiah tells us to do. He says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? 
Let that sink in for a moment. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Like Isaiah saying, lift up your eyes. Just, just take a moment and gaze. Adore the beauty and the reality of the one who created all these things. And he goes on to say this. He says, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. When's the last time you thought about that? All of a sudden you can see that it starts to shift the interior of your heart. I mean, let me bring it down a little bit further than that. This God who created all things, now everybody lean into this, God who created all things, who needs nothing, yet he pursues you. He pursues you in such a way, let me show you this picture, in such a way that the creator of the, of the universe would be willing to empty himself, step out of heaven in bodily form, and suffer on a cross so that you wouldn't be missing, so that you would be counted for. Like, picture that. The one who put the stars in place humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. You say, Pastor Matt, this is, you used to preach this on Easter. <laughs> this has to be a reality every day for us. Because can I tell you what, what, what the cross screams? The cross screams you matter to God. The cross screams of his compassion for you. The cross screams that you're not forgotten. That God is not in the cosmos out there in oblivion, disconnected from your reality, from your stress, from your anxiety, from your troubles. No, he is very present. Wanted to be so present that he came down to make sure that you were taken care of. That screams to his compassion. But then it gets better than that because it wasn't just the cross. After that was the empty tomb. Which screams of his power to save. Come on, ladies and gentlemen, you have to lean into this. The cross screams of his compassion and the tomb declares his ability and his power to save. That death couldn't hold him, the grave couldn't keep him. We can go on and on and on. And so in light of this, even in just this moment right here, you can sense your faith arising in a different place. And it's not because your situation has moved or I'm trying to manipulate you. It's like look at the word. Look at God adore the one who created you in all of this. Paul said that's the place I'm inviting you to. That's the place where your heart is about to shift. Because you know what happens in this moment, right? All of a sudden, the worries seem a little bit less scary. And you start to open up your hands of the worry that you've been holding on to. Sometimes we, we feel like worry and stress somehow, even this dysfunction as it is, that if we hold it, it's going to get better. But all of a sudden, we start to see like, man, God, I can trust you with this. I, I can trust you with my life. I think a great example of this, Jim Harbaugh. Um, you guys are like, what? That was too fast. Jim Harbaugh. This guy is smiling because Michigan is killing it. And there was another team that he coached that used to be killing it. And it's the 49ers. If you're a 49er fan, I know that you have a bye week this week. But you know after Harbaugh left, you're stressed and you need this message. Right? Come on. We're in church. we got to be honest here. But Harbaugh is, is considered one of the greatest coaches. One of the greatest coaches. He's, he's, from what I hear, a player's coach. Players want to be with him. They want to play for him. He knows how to rally the team. He knows how to build him. He knows how to work every angle. He knows how to, how to develop a great coaching staff. All of those great things. Now, from what I hear, rumor has it, don't quote this as fact or true, but that him and the owner of the 49ers didn't get along too well. And, and from the rumor, I know we shouldn't be talking about rumors in church, but it's public news. It's on the internet, right? Um, that, that there was a bit, of, a bit of control 
uh, uh, some issues with control, meaning that the coach wanted to hold or the owner wanted to kind of coach. But Harbaugh's like, no, man, I'm the professional coach. You hired me. You put me in this place. I know what I'm doing on the field. You do the executive thing because that's what you do. I'm going to do the coach thing. And there was that tug of war of, nope, I want control. Nope, this is what I want to do. This is, and it reminds me of a quote by Craig Groeschel. Pastor Craig Groeschel, he says this, you can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. I would take that a step further and say you can have control or you can have peace, but you can't have both. And so imagine if just for a moment, imagine if we could rewind back to the Niners. Imagine if maybe the owner just adored this great, incredible coach that he had before him. Just had a little bit more of a, a love and a, and a respect for his profession, for what he does. We, we saw that, that as long as this guy was, was leading the way on the field, that, hey, that maybe they weren't winning Super Bowls, but they were making it pretty close every season. The game changed because he is a professional. And imagine if it would have went like that, the 49ers might still be winning today. Um, <laughs> might still be winning. But, but I would propose this to you is, is this, is that God is the professional. He knows how the game of life is, is worked and is played. He knows how peace operates and how it works. And many times we're trying to hold on to our life and God's saying, no, I need you to let it go. I need you to put your hand into the hand of the professional so that we can start to run some plays that are actually going to work. So we can adjust some things that are actually going to move the ball down the field rather than stuck in this perpetual sense of fear, worry, anxiety. God says, I know what I'm doing when it comes to peace. I'm the author of it. I am peace. Trust me. Trust me with your life. And so, so Paul goes on to say, you not only need to make sure that adoration is placed because adoration is going to be a solution for your frustration. When you start to realize how big God is, it's really going to affect the way you pray. It's going to affect that conversation. It's going to affect so much about your life. But then Paul goes on to give us one more little hack. And if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down, is that we also need to create space to think so we can think. We need to create space to think so we can think. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, tell God what you need. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Now, tell God what you need. Now, after you just came out of that moment of adoration, don't you think asking God for what you need, don't you think that prayer might look a little bit different? Don't you think it might look a little bit larger? Maybe a little more confident? Rather than, hey, God, just help me. Hey, God, I mean, God's cool with, you know, text prayers and stuff. But after you come out of that place of, God, you're so majestic, you're so huge, you're so amazing. God, I adore you and every, I worship you. All of a sudden, when you come to him and tell him what you need, that conversation just might feel a little bit different, a little bit more confident, a little bit more assured. Uh, this Saturday, we, or this, this yesterday, we had our serve day. And... Uh, Man, it was amazing. So many good stories, so many great testimonies. Uh, but Juliana and Ralph, they were leaders of one of our small groups that actually created or uh, put all of the details together for all of the outreaches and all of the serves. And she was going to a store this last week to ask for donations um, for our Feeding the Homeless. We fed, I think, upwards of 30 to 40 homeless people, but not just fed them, but actually sat down and had conversations with, with them, built relationship. It was, it was really good. Um, but she went to the store, and she, she, as soon as she stepped in, she said she felt like the Lord tell her not to ask for a partial donation, but for the full thing, that they would donate all the eggs. And, and so she did that. And she said the lady kind of looked at her, got a little angst about her, and then said yes. It was one of those moments like, what, what, fine. So she left. Yes. She went back to pick up the eggs on Saturday, and they had a boatload of stuff waiting for her. 
Like they loaded her car. She said, I walked away from that, and I felt like the Lord reminded me that I need to ask big, that we serve a big God, that I need to make sure my prayers are a little bit more bold. But I'm going to tell you what, those prayers get more bold and are anchored in more confidence when there's adoration, when there's a life of devotion and worship and understanding who he is. It changes the way that you pray. Well, then Paul goes on to say, not just adoration, not just ask for what you need, but thank him for all that he's done. Thank him. It's amazing that, it's amazing what gratitude can do to the heart. You see, this, this word stress in the Greek or anxiety, it means to choke or to strangle. And one of the first things that stress does and anxiety does is it strangles out all of the gratitude and all the thanksgiving of the good things that are happening. And all you can see and focus on is what's terrible. And, and, and that's why you can see that not only, not only does stress just choke out uh, gratitude, but also stress becomes very selfish because all you're focused on is you. And I don't say that to heap any condemnation. If you stress with, if you wrestle with anxiety or you're taking medication, don't stop. Don't go do anything drastic. I'm not trying to heap any condemnation on you if you wrestle with this. I'm just trying to tell you that God is inviting us outside of us to begin to look to him in a way that can completely shift the atmosphere of our heart. And gratitude is one of the greatest sources, one of the greatest antidotes for stress and anxiety. It's one of the greatest. Because there's something when our hearts are grateful, there's something that happens when there's, there's a heart of thanksgiving on the inside of us. It just changes the atmosphere. Let me give you an example. One of the things I always say in marriage coaching, and many of you guys have probably heard me say this before, but anytime I start to feel with Jackie like, like maybe I'm irritated with her, maybe I'm a little bit stressed with her, maybe she's annoying me, never. <laughs> You know, sometimes it's on a daily, and uh, but I always go back to that moment that I was crying out to God that she would like me, and he answered that prayer. Like, he gave me the woman of my dreams, but there's something, listen, yes, you can clap for that. It's awesome. I love you, boo. But there's something that happens when you go back and remember all that he's done, your heart starts to get filled with the sense of privilege. It starts to get filled with this sense of thanksgiving. Then all of a sudden, remembering what God has done in the past and how faithful he's been in the past gives us this confident step as we move forward into the future. But here's the problem. Who has time to even think about what God has done? I want to I wrap this up because I feel like this is, where I'm going to land the plane here in just, just a couple of minutes. But I think this is so important for everybody in this room to really lean into. Where is the time to even think so you can think? Like, like when do you actually have some space to reflect? When's the last time you just sat down for five minutes and thought about your day? We're just inundated with stuff. Let me show you how much data is produced every single day. Every single day, 2.5 exabytes, which I don't even know what that means. <laughs> exabytes is created every single day. New Eastern University did a study. Look what they, look what they came up with. That 2.5 exabytes produced every day are equivalent to 530 million songs. This is how much data is produced every day. 150 million iPhones, 5 million laptops, 250,000 libraries of Congress, and 90 years of HD video is created every single day. What does that mean now for you and I? What's well, huge? Let me show you. Kerry Newhoff did some research on this. He's a pastor, author, brilliant. This is what he came up with. That in the 1900, in 1900, 16 newspapers worth of information is what people experience in a lifetime. Like if you lived in 1900, the amount of information or data that was pushed at you was about 16 newspapers in your entire life. 
1986, 40 newspapers of info into your daily life. 2011, 174 newspapers of information that's pushed at you daily, that you're enhancing or experiencing daily. They couldn't even translate it from newspapers anymore. Now it's just 725 minutes of media per day, which is the equivalent of 12 hours the average American consumes. And that's everything, phone, social media, computer, movies, Netflix, 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 right? <laughs> replay, replay, starting five, four, three, you want to do it, you want to do it? One, it's playing, You're, we're in, Netflix. Okay. <laughs> don't act like you don't watch Netflix. But this is a lot of data being pushed at us every single day. You want to know what our devotional lives look like? Let me show you. Five to 15 minutes a day. If you're, 15 minutes if you're solid. Solid with Jesus. Give him a solid 15 this morning of prayer, of God's word. And we wonder, like, why? Why am I not hearing from you, God? And we're so focused on, on trying just, I mean, with all that data coming at us, listen, even if you did the 15 minutes a day, by the time it gets to noon, you're frazzled already. Like, you know in the morning you're supposed to be loving and gracious and compassionate. By noon, you're tearing somebody's head off. Let's go. Stress had three cups of coffee. I'm zoning. Ugh. It's true. And we wonder why we're not hearing from God. We wonder why we're not connecting. We wonder why there's such a disconnect. Well, there's so much data thrown at us. We're consuming so much in our day. And we're trying to find a devotional time. And I would propose to you that you do not need a devotional time. You need a devotional life. You don't simply need a devotional time. You need a devotional times. You need a new rhythm. I need a new rhythm. And I've been looking at this and I've been experimenting with this and I've been trying to figure out Man, Lord, we're getting inundated with so much stuff. Now, I'm not saying that you can't walk and work and, and do life with Jesus. I, that's, man, yeah, you can work and enjoy God's presence and all that good stuff. So I'm not saying the only time you connect with God is, is in, you know, your devotional times. I'm actually saying the opposite. We need to learn to live and walk and breathe with him every moment and then just have some 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 times not time but times throughout the day that can recalibrate us and can reposture our heart to adore to 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 request to be thankful to have a heart of gratitude I'm telling you it, it may not fix all of your anxiety problems in this moment but if you start to build this rhythm it's going to shift some things immensely I promise you this and so so this is what I would propose to you and I'm done is that we need a daily Sabbath rhythm. I don't have time to preach to you a sermon on the Sabbath. But in the Old Testament, what a Sabbath was for was to simply, was one day of rest a week. No work. One day of rest. Not because God needed it, because we need it. It was a gift to us. And what it was saying is this. I'm going to trust God to provide during the other six. And on that seventh day, I'm going to trust God to do what I cannot do on my own. It was a reminder to the people that he is God and I am not. So I'm going to rest and let God refresh my heart, let God work out all of these situations and implications of my job, of my relationships and my career. I'm going to, I'm going to take a Sabbath. Now, this is interesting. Chick-fil-A, they are killing it in the marketplace. And they're not open on Sunday. They have, they have half as many stores as most restaurant chains, and they're bringing in just as much revenue, and they're killing all of them, except like they're on like the, they're, they're like the top five. They're like in the top five range or the top eight. But of all these chains that have tons of stores, not Chick-fil-A, they have less stores, and they're closed one day a week, but they're killing it. Why? Because what they're saying is, hey, listen, we're going to trust God to provide and do what we can never do on our own. We're going to work a lot smarter with him and, and not harder against him. Not, not as a legalistic thing. But, man, you know how those workers, they get to go home on Sunday. They get to rest. I don't know what they're doing. They should be at church. But, 
but we need to develop a daily Sabbath rhythm. This is, this is what I would propose to you. This is what it looks like, is you just need to schedule a stop. Schedule a stop in the morning, schedule a stop in the afternoon, and schedule a stop in the evening. I think just starting off three times, schedule a stop. If you don't put it in the calendar, you won't do it. I won't do it. Like if you have a meeting with God, set up a meeting, a stop. Well, I'm just going to stop here. And I'm not talking about a fake stop, not a Hollywood stop, where you kind of roll through the stop sign, I kind of stop. No, I'm talking stop. And then maybe take two minutes and just be silent. If I told you right now, hey, guys, we're going to be silent for one minute, you know how many people would feel awkward in this place? We don't know how to be silent anymore. Dallas Willard said silence and solitude is, is probably the greatest discipline of the Christian life. Because it's when we're still and we can recognize that he's God and we're not, we can start to adore and understand that he's able to do what we're not able to do. We can start to reflect on, on his ability that he can do the impossible and we can remember his faithfulness and everything that God has brought us through. So no matter how difficult the day is, by the time I'm done here, just a couple of minutes of, of reflecting on who he is, my, my heart's getting recalibrated. And then throw a scripture in there. See, here's the deal. This is not hard for us. We got phones. We got Bibles. We got all these devices. We got millions of devotionals. The problem is, is we can't get these two right, so we never get here. Are you guys tracking with me? And so if we can just schedule a stop, schedule some silence, and man, incorporate and meditate on some scripture, Paul says, you're going to be positioning yourself really, really well when it comes to this uncommon peace in a world where stress is very common. And he goes on and he, I'm done. He says this, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds. This word exceeds means to abound and overflow, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds. I could imagine Paul looking at some of the guards of his day and saying, that's what peace does. It guards you. That's what the peace of God does. Like that adoration. And you're able to come and commune with him and ask him for your greatest needs like a kid coming to their dad. And then, and then this thanksgiving of being reminded of all that God has done both in your life and throughout the ages, that nothing is impossible, that if he did it before, he can do it again. And all of a sudden, peace starts to guard your heart in a way that you're never the same, that you can live in the midst of any circumstance. You can live in the midst of trouble, turmoil. It transcends all of that. It's the peace of God. But here's the catch. He says, it'll guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what I can't do for you. It's a choice. You have to choose to live in him. Not just a moment with him, but live, abide. He is your rhythm. He is your rhythm.